0: seems so long sometimes. It's actually just a, a very small part of the year, <laughs> consider it. And it, there's a relevance to time. It just takes time for things to settle down, to clear. And you, you, you can't forget that. You can't expect something is suddenly going to switch into place. And by and large, the first um, phases... And you have to know this for yourself, what your energy is like, what your clarity is like, how much weight you're carrying. It really is just a question of shedding burdens, putting things down, and trying to get some comfortable feeling, settled and comfortable. Beginning to access the, uh, the chitta rather than the activities of the chitta, rather than the turbulences. Something like the sense of um, an inner quality of stability, presence, a certain vitality to it, warmth to it, and a certain wisdom to it, clarity to it. You begin to know a hindrance is a hindrance. You begin to know you can you can witness a hindrance or a difficult feeling and not act upon it. You begin to know you can also witness difficult feelings and not be disappointed by it. You know, it just this is it's like this. You, know, you get some sense, this is what withdrawal means. It means we're pulling out of engagement. We're also pulling out of emotional reactions, of despair or agitation or frustration. Because this does no good at all. So that's really this withdrawal. Uh, that's considered to be the process of calming or stabilizing or soothing or steadying or refreshing the chitta, Refreshing it. So this is something that's an ongoing practice and here you have a very good um, opportunity for that because there's not much sense impact, that which there is is pretty mild and nothing that exciting or desperately urgent. And you have sense restraint, keeping the eight precepts, so this is definitely uh, many things are just taken away, the, the mind just can't get involved with it. Television and speed of life, so you're withdrawing from that. This is this is done for you. <laughs> this is why it's very helpful. But then, of course, we have to also take personal responsibility and do it ourselves, and learn to do it yourself because this is this situation will not last. And if we were wise, we recognise you have got this time. Then important to learn are the benefits of sense restraint, withdrawal. Know how to do it. Know how to do it at an obvious level. Just deliberately switch things off. Just at um, th- you know, just <laughs> basically switch stuff off <laughs> and uh, cut off and <coughs> seal off and. Uh, you know, this is something that, of course, you know, in daytime you might feel, well, I just have to have things switched on. But then, you know, at least spend some time every day just deliberately unplugging, switching things off, turning things off, switching off the phone, uh, switching off the telly, switching off, you know, just that as a, as a commitment. This is how you structure. You have to create a structure for your practice. Here you can see the structure and outline, the eight precepts, uh, silence, sense restraint, limitation, structures built in. And you know, again, this is, again, it's a special situation, but you've got to get that message. All of us need some structure. I need structure. You know, it's, uh, I've internalized it now. I mean, that's what the years of training have done, that structure is now internal. I can live in busy places and switch off, unplug. But then, as a as a bhikkhu, you've got a lot of privilege in that respect. People will allow you to do it. So, in a way, you've got to put the message out. <laughs> you know, this is, sorry, this is the Sunday or the opposite of the day, I switch off. <laughs> you know, you get that message out, see you tomorrow, or get back to tomorrow, but this day I switch off, or this time I switch off. That's what I'm about, you know. And you get that message out because, uh this is serious stuff. This is your own welfare. That's it, that's at stake. And uh, often we get, we just build up these burdens through some kind of following the crowd. Everybody else is doing, it. you don't want to stand out, you don't want to be standoffish, you don't want to be antisocial, so you just go along with it and, you know where where where's the crowd going <laughs> you look at where the crowd is going. <laughs> They're not going to Nirvana, that's for sure. It's just like lemming's just going over the cliff, you know <laughs> so you look at where everybody else is going you know, I think I got that message as about twenty five I could look around and see where. Everybody else is going. Whatever that is, I don't want to go there. (laughs) I didn't know where to go, but I didn't want to do that. So I thought, I'll try and find some spiritual teaching. So that's why I ended up being in Thailand and taking taking robes. Okay, you know you have commitments, but um, realizing this is very important to just write down structure, and that will mean. Not just subtle internal things but definitely external things things about your lifestyle. And one thing that you know one of the to take away from retreat is what can I take away that's gonna help my lifestyle so that I'm not just always two steps forward, two steps back. <laughs> you know, and even getting two steps forward takes a bit of work, doesn't it? And you don't want to keep going back again. And it's really to be honest to yourself like what really is for your, your interests and uh, check them out and you see clearly you've made commitments you, you think you're interested in this this is something you're, you are enthusiastic about you're prepared to commit to and experience struggle and discomfort with so oh, you have to acknowledge you know you're in, this, is, this is an interest for you how much is it worth and how much is, are other things worth Add it up, just this is very being very shrewd, practical advice, <laughs> and this is something why centers like this are important because you can come back and get a refill and you can just stop by and come on a weekend or something and just oh, remember remember it's all have Buddha images. And all this, they act as like signposts in a world of blazing lights and fancy entertainments, a Buddha image, really helpful. Good to have one in your home when you just sit there with that, just as a reminder. Now, as I was saying, we're now really in the middle of the retreat and it's in some ways a relatively short time. But it's important to bring to mind this uh, quality of steady and calming and soothing is like a healing process because the jitta is gets so confused and it's contradicting itself where you can see it running around as it becomes more steady and I've tried to give some uh, advice on how to make the, the jitter, the mind, the heart steadier, more comfortable, more assured then we also, as it comes together, the unification of chitta samadhi, there's a certain strength in that. And it's important to bring forth your strength. So the samatha is, is a soothing, calming, steadying. Samadhi is slightly different from that. It's obviously, that's, that's one of the ways we um, enter samadhi. Also you have to have wisdom to enter samadhi, to know what is to be put aside, what is to be discarded. So it's not just a kind of, like, tranquilizers, you know, <laughs> it's also discernment is necessary to know this thought, put it how to put a thought aside, what is a hindrance, how to put it aside, how to counteract it, how to steady the mind, so all this requires wisdom, discernment. And uh, in a way, this is often the main theme of most teachings is just how to do this, because these hindrances are tricky. But you do learn, this is where you learn your skills. This is the wrestling match, where you learn the throws and the skills. This is where you learn when to duck, when to weave, when to go forward, when to go back, when to take a breather, (laughs) when to throw a few shots out. So these hindrances. Uh, clearly, the the uh, the mind becomes more steady. You know it for what it is. You You're no longer believing in the narratives and the complexities they create. You can see, say, uh, sense desire as what it is, and feel the pulling of it, and the uncomfortable quality of it, and the nagging restlessness of it, the hungry dog. And clearly, you know, we do we cultivate we cultivate the sense restraint. Your soft gaze. We're not staring at things. We are moderating our appetites, food, so forth, just what's necessary. You cultivate like that, and then you cultivate experiencing the rough nature of sense desire. The Buddha gave an image of a, of a leper with these itching sores, and this is like he says, this is like sense desire. You keep wanting to scratch it. And he says this leper, he puts, cauterizes, you know, the wounds, so that they, for a moment you get a bit of relief. And of course it flares up again. It's like the itch of sense-desire. And I don't know if you ever, sometimes you see these uh, dogs who've had infections in their ears, and they've been taken to the vet, and they put his kind of collar on his neck so he can't scratch his ear. Because when you get the itch, you just really... You see the dog wants to scratch his ear, just have to put something on to stop him doing it. And uh, that's sometimes what you have to do, just really <laughs> shut it out. But then as you, you do that, so that you can get some sense of um, the withdrawal, otherwise your mind's always going to be running out. You contemplate with food, well food, how long, you know, it looks nice, It looks very pretty, nice, often you appreciate the the, the giving, the generosity. But then you don't eat with your eyes. So you put it in your mouth. That's where it turns into valuable stuff. Once you put it in your mouth, you spit it out, it doesn't look very nice anymore. It's just kind of pulp. You, You get it down to your stomach. Imagine opening your stomach up and looking at the food Then you wouldn't want to eat it. When it gets into your intestines, you definitely (laughs) don't want to eat it. (laughs) So, what was all that? And it's actually only when it gets in your stomach that it's worthwhile. Right? I mean, the most food is no good on a plate. It's not even much good in your mouth. It only becomes good when it gets into your stomach and then it's really visually unattractive. But that's you eat with your stomach, not with your eyes. So you just, you know, just look at what is necessary to put there and that will just be medicine on the wound of, of uh, hunger. And also not with some kind of disapproval, we realize that the body needs this, we're grateful to have this medicine. But, you know, if you get a tube of medicine, like a balm, you don't look at it going, wow, that's such beautiful balm. <laughs> you just put it on the wound, don't you? the Buddha said well you know you should regard material food as the the parable of the the, the couple walking across the desert with their son man and his wife walking across the desert with their son they're ten days in the desert they've got no food left they know they've got another ten days before they can get out of the desert so we're all going to die so they decide they'll kill their son and eat him so that at least two of them will get out alive so, do you think they enjoyed that meal? I <laughs> said, so "This is the way you should regard material food. This is searing stuff." <laughs> and clearly, the Buddha didn't he didn't pull his punches when he needed to drive a point home. And of course, this is, I don't ask you people to kill their sons or their daughters or children, but just to have the sense of you know what what's really necessary and this obviously is to do with physical food consider all sense objects like that because you take more than you need it's a burden it's a weight, it's a burden you've got to get involved with it you've got to look after it you've got to tidy it up you've got to prepare it you've got to think about the next one you've got to compare it with the last one is it new, is it old you've got to do all this stuff that just eats your mind up so to learn to live simply is an enormous asset. And if we don't take these external steps, you know, you're asking a huge amount of, out of your meditation practice to do it for you. You know, you want to do the external work so that your meditation practice can deal with what it's, what it's specifically designed for, not just leave it all up to, to that. So this is an important reflection. And then so we also, with things we do, other things you can look at, immaterial objects as well, you know, it's shiny metal plastic thing, what's it going to be like in 10 years time, just rusty old heap, broken down, this year's clothes, two years time they'll be out of date. So, what do you need? Animate things, other people, other people's shapes, other people's bodies, You reflect upon the shape of the body, its nature, and also the internal qualities of the body, the sweating, the blood, sinews, and all these fluids. Most of the body is fluid. They're not especially attractive. In fact, tends to be rather repelling. You ever see dead bodies or open up a dead body, it's it's even difficult to be in the same room. So you bring that to mind. It's not to say anything more than that it helps to counteract this medicine, the way that the mind gets boggled or dazed by external appearances of human bodies. The opposite is the case. We have ill will, then we cultivate non-aversion, kindness. So you are the humans and creatures that you don't... You know, spiders, creepy crawlies, centipedes, snakes. Um, you just... Cultivate goodwill towards them. You don't want to stamp on them or get rid of them because they have their own lives to live. They can't help looking like that. For a centipede, you probably don't look that good. <laughs> you haven't got enough legs. <laughs> so, you know, it's just the point of view, isn't it? <laughs> We've we all got to get by in our own forms and shapes. And really, the, the, these creatures have as much right to live and exist as I do, <laughs> whether I like them or not. You know, so we have that sense of uh, respect and uh, non-aversion. Then There are things of substance. We might find ourselves averse to: spittle, urine, these kind of excrements of the body. Just see these as elements. If you feel averse, these are just elements earth, water, substances. And that's really helpful too. I mean, then if people get sick and their bodies start falling apart, you can you can deal with that with with equanimity, you're not having to squirm or feel disgusted. Well your own body does that. You just know this is the nature of bodies. They tend to vomit occasionally or bleed or whatever. This is counteracting One system is cutting off, it's deliberately pulled back. One theme is counteracting. You have one perception, one impression, you put an opposite impression against it. So you have a perception that pulls you forward, you put a perception that pushes you back. You have a perception or impression that pushes you back, you have an impression that pulls you forward. Till the mind finds neutrality. Equanimity, finds poise, it's not pushed forward, it's not pushed back. And in that, this is where it gets its strength. Because all that being pushed and pulled, which we take for granted, that takes up energy. It all uses energy. And the, the less that can happen, the more the energy is going to collect and gather, and steady you're going to get strength and well being and greater clarity. The mind that's, that's steady by itself accumulates energy and this is important because unless we have energy you can't make an effort you know you try and make an effort without any energy it's just like you're like trying to drive a car with no petrol in the tank or no engine you push the pedal nothing happens so we need that that energy as the potency to act to direct our attention to firm up to withdraw our attention to steady it to encourage it And so all these things, uh, these skills are there to allow energy to gather. You can't make effort unless you have energy. This is why, you know, often when you come to meditation retreat, the first thing is just to learn to just get simple and relaxed, to let your energy gather, collect. And just kind of don't think too much or worry too much or get caught up with trying to get enlightened or something. Just learn to take a break and be patient, and do simple stuff, sitting in your body, turning up on time, going through the routines, cultivating simple, down-to-earth patience and goodwill, and just restraining, limiting. Then your energy is going to gather, and you'll know because you'll start to feel like, yeah, I want to I get going. You, wanna, you feel some strength, and it begins as confidence. So, these indriya, which I've mentioned, saddha, virya, sati, samadhi, panya, faith, energy, mindfulness, unification, and wisdom, discernment, they uh, turn into what are called bala, called strengths. They start out as supports, indriya, supportive or leading faculties, and as they mature, they become strengths. So that faith which is first of all a sense of things could be better i could this might be good it's a, it's a tentative thing i'm yeah you know, i'm prepared to be open to this it becomes confidence yes i trust this then it becomes certainty i know this and that's a strengthening isn't it then you know certain things and therefore because of that your energy which starts off as a kind of eagerness I'd like to have a try becomes specific application this place is where I need to put my energy to let it gather this is how I preserve my energy don't let it go out you know thinking, planning, reading and so forth don't let it go out and then it becomes persistent strength. The mind just keeps going forward. You feel it brimming with a certain vigor. The Buddha talked of the training an elephant, you know, a wild elephant. First of all, you soothe the wild elephant. You take you a tame elephant to go out into the jungle and you tether the tame elephant to the wild elephant. It brings it back. So you connect yourself to the, the sangha, to the community to the Buddha Dhamma then you begin to soothe it, calming, steadying. Wild elephant loses its crazy ways, its willfulness, it becomes more comfortable. Then you start to get it to work, strengthen it and then you challenge it so it has to push and then it learns how to stand steady when you tell it to stand steady and learns how to go forward when you need to go forward because it has potentially enormous strength None, I don't think there's any of us who would not bring forth enormous strength for the welfare of our children, if we needed to, if they were in threat, for, to save our own life. You know, you, you, you'd find you had the plenty of power to do that, you needed to do it. And now we are trying to save that life. <laughs> because we're at risk. But we have the benefit, we are in this situation where we are given the chance to heal and perhaps not feel very good, getting a hangover of life, and come through that. So you begin to use your strength. And while we have this last couple of days, there's a time to cultivate that strength of purpose. And you cultivate it indriya um, sati. First of all, sati is the ability to form a frame of reference. Now I'll refer to this particular theme, body. Body in the body. How does a body feel as itself, in itself? Uh, without going to the details of um, personality, my friends, my uncle, man, woman, big, small, how does it feel in itself? Now, coming back to that frame of reference, time and time again, because it keeps slipping out. This is feeling as feeling. Feeling is not good, it's not bad, feelings happen. Pleasure, pain happens. We may be disturbed by pain, we may be excited by pleasure, we may be embarrassed by pleasure or um, embarrassed by pain. You know, you can do all kinds of things about them, but they happen. Pleasant objects arise, you feel pleased. (laughs) Feeling happens. But a feeling is a feeling. Pleasure is pleasure. You don't have to jump on it. Pain is pain. You don't have to weep and cry and run away. Life is difficult. It has these qualities. You won't find anything that contacts you that's not pleasant or painful or indifferent. But the indifferent often swings from being neutral to being boring or neutrally don't notice it. So mostly we notice pleasure, pain. And so we're learning to name that. This is a feeling. And what is kind of pleasant feeling that doesn't generate side effects, doesn't pull you out. And there is a pleasant feeling that doesn't pull you out. And it helps to unify the mind. And this is the pleasure of calm, withdrawal, ease, kindness, Pleasure of good intention. Now it's the case that intentionality, that means our, what we bring forth, whether we bring forth goodwill, badwill, or we bring forth generosity or meanness, they also have a particular feeling to them. They're not just morally good or bad. And the Buddha says there's not a single good intention that is not accompanied and doesn't give result to a pleasant abiding. So there is a kind of pleasure that he said you should not worry about this one. So this is again an avenue through the tricky world of feeling. So yes, generate, don't be frightened of the good feeling that comes from making merit, from generosity, from virtue, from honesty, from harmlessness, from self-respect, from respecting others, from telling the truth. Because this is the kind of feeling that actually enriches confidence and energy. So you frame up. But feeling is feeling. So you have that sense of withdrawal, then you select this one. This one leads to unification of mind. This one leads to my welfare. And, of course, as long as our feeling is hooked onto what happens to us, right? what other people say or what comes into my eyes or my mouth, then my source of pleasure is dependent upon factors that I have no real say over. You know, I can't demand that every everything around me, or expect everything around me, is going to be pleasant feeling. I can't say I want the weather to be like this. I don't like this. I don't like that. You know, it's not going to make any difference, is it? So, you know, wise person, well, look, you know, why don't you get a pleasure that, that you can have some say, which is the pleasure of your own heart, <laughs> because you you can govern that. And it's not the same sort of firework pleasure that flashes. It's a slower, steadier, dawning pleasure. So you'd be quite mindful of that. the beauty of goodwill, a quiet warmth that comes from an act of sharing. It gives me pleasure to offer this to you. you know, and that's not selfish, because it's come through sharing. So the skill, the pleasure of good intention. And this is something we can do every day. Note it. Don't just act, but note. Be mindful of that. Bring your attention to that. You can always help somebody. So the Buddha says, you know, the, the, the highest kind of pleasure is when you get a chance to enter samadhi. Then you direct your attention to that. Because this um, doesn't expire, it will stay there as long as you stay in it. Uh, it will stay there, and it will tend to not just be agreeable but also uh, be it suffuses as a way of saturating places in your chitta in your mind that feel starved or broken or miserable or dull or whatever. You can permeate chitta, You can permeate your body with it. How do you do that? Well, you, you enter, you get some sense of calm, and then when you feel the somewhere in your mind, you feel a sense of ill will or pessimism or cynicism or bitterness. You just, just turn that quality because the mind then assumes a kind of almost a substance, fine substance, just like... Um, silk or like a kind of light you know, it's difficult to talk about mind having a substance in, in, in ordinary language but it's almost like a kind of a mist which you, you begin to notice it because whenever you have a strong good intention you can feel you, there's a quality to that, it's not just the thought there's definitely a movement something rises up and moves out and lingers like a mist and then dissolves the way it seems to me it's just using a visual image you might feel it as a sense of um, opening or buoyancy Uh, that sense of it experience and you can direct that you learn to direct that to places in yourself that need it and of course the obvious um, gesture is kindness, goodwill may this be well and you can do that to your body as well internally it's to do with um, lessening the places that are cramped, or constricted, or stressed. So, you be mindful, as they say, frame up, and uh, mindful of body, mindful of feeling, mindful of citta. Chitta is like affected by sourness or disappointment. Therefore, know that, bring that knowing quality, and then what's helpful? Sometimes just even being aware of it helps it to open and dissolve. Sometimes we need to just breathe into it or send goodwill into that. So we're mindful of citta, you frame that up. So with this um, sati, it becomes forming a focus, then the wisdom to know what we need to focus on and how to hold that focus steady so the goodness of our hearts can enter places that need it. And this is where we have the fourth foundation, called the Foundation of Dhammas. We recognize, uh, there's a whole list here, uh, perceptions, feelings and hindrances and enlightenment factors. And this itself is a long topic. But you could say basically there's good forces and bad forces and you're you know what you are attending to, what needs to be dwelt in, encouraged, what needs to be responded to. Then all this will definitely strengthen samadhi, because samadhi is not just the kind of blind um, holding things steady, it's a skillful how do you hold something steady, how do things get balanced. It's like uh, someone walking a, a, a tightrope or a plank, narrow place. It's not just vigour they need, they need sensitivity to know, you know the speed or how to operate their muscles or how to maintain balance so they're able to stay steady and it looks easy from the outside. <laughs> now you can't necessarily get this isn't, figure it out as an idea but you learn it. Your jitter learns it the way you learn to walk when you're a little crawling toddler. Somebody said, well, to walk, you've got to stand up straight and take a few paces and it doesn't doesn't work like that. You crawl along and you find the strength in your legs and your arms and you sort of get up and fall down again and you take a few steps and lose balance and fall down again. Then you get up, take a few more steps and hey, and then you fall down again. <laughs> uh, but eventually, we did it, didn't we? <laughs> Took time. Um, it's not an intellectual process. But it's a process that involves mindfulness, wisdom, determination and confidence. So samadhi is developed through wisdom and it makes wisdom effective because you can use the firmness of samadhi to hold your understanding against the power of delusion. Even though this looks great, I know better than this. Even though... This mood in my mind is saying, oh, I can't do this, this is, uh, I know what that mood is about, stay with it. You know, you know how to handle it. We don't believe in every voice in our hearts. And we know, we begin to know them, we're wise about them. And we also recognize, you know, this voice is suffering, it's unsatisfied, it's uh, needy, Um Where do you think it can take me if I follow it? Where does it take me? It doesn't take you out of suffering. Because it's already in suffering. How can something that's in suffering take you out of suffering? (laughs) You know, how can a drowning person help you to swim? (laughs) So the voice of suffering, when you understand it, you think, well, uh, yeah, it will take me out of suffering by, not by following, by knowing it as this and knowing what is the seed of that suffering and how do I release that? So wisdom really comes down to knowing the Four Noble Truths as they come to you. And of course the first one that comes to you is the First Noble Truth, which is the one you don't want, of course. (laughs) Which it could be the Third Noble Truth first. (laughs) Uh, The first one that comes is the first noble truth. Oh, I didn't want this. (laughs) I wanted happiness. But if we have enough confidence and trust and faith that this is exactly what should be happening, in a way, we are meeting the the places of, of ignorance and now we've been given this support and we've developed the strength and support and the faith and the energy and the skills to, you know, take that first noble truth into the through the second and into the third. And this requires investigation, doesn't it? What is the source of this? What is the source of suffering? Where does it how does it arise? How does it come up? How does it sustain itself? You know, a simple message is Tanha, wanting, Craving, a kind of a thirst to have something, to be something, to abolish something, to have something not here that is here. This is the theme. And what is it triggered by? This has become very pertinent. This is what we call the understanding of the five kanda. And what I'll talk about another time perhaps, but in the mind, the citta, the beauty of it is that all this very complicated world and you begin to see this more clearly in the unification of mind which simplifies there's only two triggers for the arising of suffering in the citta that causes tanha one is feeling and the other is perception and the citta only experiences feeling and perception it doesn't experience people it doesn't experience sound it doesn't experience sight it doesn't experience the future, the past It only experiences perception and feeling. Now feeling is relatively simple, isn't it? Pleasant, painful. And there's a sort of a... that triggers a certain thirst to have it, to to run away from it. There's a certain compulsive reaction to that. And we learn steadying, 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 soothing, balancing, uh, with mental feeling. But mental feeling, mental feeling arises from perception. So you really go down to one point, because most of our suffering is mental. Physical suffering, you can kind of step back, oh, my body's in pain. You know, yeah, yeah, that's not so good. But it doesn't get into you the way that mental feeling does. And the mental feeling arises through perception. So you go down to one point. This makes it pretty simple. So what is perception? Perception is, we could say, and I'll try a few words, the impression things leave in our minds. Friendly, hostile. Soft, rough. Busy, relaxed. Urgent, nothing to do. Safe, threatened. Useless, valuable. Attractive, unattractive. Pleasurable. We imagine something is pleasurable or we imagine it's unpleasurable before we've actually tasted it, touched it. And a lot of this comes through the senses. The senses trigger, but it's the mind that interprets that. We see, what do we see? You look at that, the field of experience. And I tell you, you don't you don't see with your eyes. You see with your eyes and your mind. And the mind, as you know, is, is so strong that even with your eyes closed you can see things. <laughs> you see people from yesterday, you see, you know, faces of people you knew. And they're still pretty vivid, aren't they? We see with our minds as well as our eyes. You just have your eyes in a neutral state and you withdraw from any kind of interest, mental interest, your eyes are open. There's just, what is it, different colors? Movements? hmm So? But then what happens? A mental action called attention starts to focus in, starts to shape it up. Now this is so normal that we don't recognize it as a mental action at all. We think the eyes do that. But they only do that because the mind tells them to in its own way. It says, Frank, look at that, looks nice. What's that? That's curious, interesting. So it focuses. And generally it focuses why? It seeks something interesting or something... So it seeks something pleasant or something interesting or when it's infused with ill will, it seeks something to be annoyed about. <laughs> it's strange. We, we, we can have a fault-finding mind. So when you're in your house, you look around and you see, lovely housing. there's a stain on the carpet. Yeah. And like 98% of the carpet is unstained. There's a little spot in the corner and you, you, know, you see something that stands out. And we can find faults with other people's behaviour and that's true, but it's like 1%, 2%, 3%. And but that quality of mind, which has created the, the focus, then establishes a the perception. The perception is she is this, he is that. So what was actually a kind of relative truth, there is this quality, and sometimes it's not even that true. You didn't you didn't get it right. You missed too many mistake. You misunderstood, you misjudged, you didn't, you know. Because you don't know other people. You don't know what's going on for them. Somebody in a state of fear might do say something clumsy. And you, when you understand where they're coming from, then perhaps you'd be a little more compassionate. Somebody who doesn't know what they're supposed to do can act in a way that to you seems rude. Because they don't know your customs or manners. So these are ways in which we often misinterpret each other. But that perception, he is, she is, stupid, da-da-da-da-da. That's the meaning, that's the perception, that stays there. And you, you remember, or it acts as the... And then other things that seem to, to match that, you add, you add on top of it, it proves it. <laughs> so we can build up this little library on another person. And that's what we carry around. So, as you know, as you sit and meditate, where are all those people walking around inside your head? (laughs) Where's all those events that were past? How come they're still there? How come the images of yourself? How can you have an image of yourself? A shadow image, I'm this, I'm never that, I'm always this, I can't be that. Where, where, where did that come from? How, how come it's walking around inside you? This is called perception. Uh, and the chitta is activated by that. When it's activated, then it is called, what moves out is called sankara, is an activation, something, ooh. And... The leader of that attention is one thing: the moving out of the jitter to form a focus. Another way, of it, the most obvious way it moves out is, is called volition or intention, which means something acts, something decisively engages with a quality of, say, ill will or distaste, or you know, or despair or dismissiveness or harshness, or skillfully. Goodwill, kindness, compassion. There's this response to that. And we're responding to perceptions. And you can use this because you start to generate perceptions that are helpful. Perceptions of Buddha, perceptions of Sangha, perceptions of Dhamma. Perceptions uh, of self-respect. You bring to mind those and you recollect those. You recollect the goodness of other people. You do this constantly until... You know, you have perceptions, you recollect people as fragile, as born of their karma, as innately like me. You know, we're born half blind, what do you expect? (laughs) We're saturated, you know, we get bombarded with delusion, what do you expect from other people? They're going to walk around like saints? So you get some sense of compassion when you get a more accurate perception of the human beings. And so you you hold that against these other perceptions. You should be perfect. You should never annoy me or disappoint me. Well, you know, really? (laughs) Uh. But if you know, we're dealing with the reality of, of life. You say, it's fine, disappoint me. Then I'll learn to be a bit stronger and not demand so much, <laughs> not expect so much. You know, it's not that you want ill will, but you're prepared to live with other beings and learn how to get patient, compassionate, resolute, strong, clear, firm. You, you get, you're get you not just a baby anymore. You, know, you, you don't need that, that sense of weaning. You, you grow up. And, you know, eventually you get even grateful for the people who've given you a bit of a hard time because they help helped you to be more determined or more patient or more equanimous. I say, you know, it's, it's much better, much more better if people insult you and blame you then you insult them and blame them. Much better. If they insult and blame you, you've got the chance of developing something skillful. If you blame and insult them, you just generate a whole load of bad karma. And How many times do you find yourself blaming people in your mind? So, I mean, this is putting in very Boldly, you know, I don't think we necessarily go into huge amounts of it, but some sense of negativity and criticism. As soon as you engage with that, that's mental karma. You may not speak about it, you may not physically act upon it, but that is mental karma. It means a decisive engagement with this, these intentions. Intention arises and you, you engage with it. And it creates a pattern, because what your mind engages with becomes a pattern, rather like carving um, a valley. The water will run down that. And as it runs down that valley, the valley gets deeper, right? You know, imagine we have flat land and you decide you'll create a, a trough, the water will run down that. As it does so, it will carve it deeper, and deeper, and deeper. So when the rain comes, it's going to go down that trough, isn't it? Until that becomes very deep. This is mental karma. If we create unskillful intentions and you know fondle them, then mental energy will run down that channel and make it stronger and deeper. This is why we're in danger. You don't have a choice. There's no level ground. We're born with these already. There are some troughs created. We're born with that. What we do recognize, if you create another channel, deeper, wider, the water is going to go that way. And that's going to get stronger and the other one will dry up. Good karma. me. So that's what you develop. This is your possibility. If you're wise, you do that. And you can do this in meditation. You can do it when you speak, you can do it when you act, you can do it in your daily life. Uh, Naturally, you have to keep remembering it, write it down. Uh, Mental karma arises from perceptions. Step back, be careful what you imagine. Other people, imagine about yourself, be careful of that. Look at it wisely, detect if there's a hindrance in that or not. And recognize if you follow that, then, yeah, that will create a tendency. And you'll have to mop it up, so while we have the chance we have some clarity, we start to create those deep channels going another direction, and we do this you know very simply, like watching your mind and lifting it out of that trough and sticking it somewhere else, <laughs> just that much the strength to keep doing that and determining it and benefiting of it and feeling it fully so we establish skillful perceptions and skillful volitions and the more you do that the knowing arises the knowing arises becomes clear and you become dispassionate towards perceptions because they're all mind created so I hope there's something there for you to to work with to Consider, yeah. begin to understand your territory, the territory of your chitta, its strengths. You have strength. You have confidence. You have mindfulness. You have wisdom. You have some unification. Where's your suffering? What generates it? What are the trigger points for that? Perceptions. And how do you let go of that one? How do you pull out of that one? How do you develop the path?